Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we're in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And we're going to continue our podcast series on the history of ancient philosophy. And today we're going to talk about the Sophists, and then we'll talk uh, fairly briefly about Socrates. So um, we've talked about the pre-Socratics, the guys before Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And uh, the last group that we need to look at is the Sophists. And um, if uh, if you hear that word sophist, uh, you might you might uh, associate that with sophistry. Um, maybe if you've been reading some Shakespearean plays or something, or remember from high school. Um, so sophistry is a way of saying you're just confusing the issue um, to try and show how smart you are, um, or to try and get away with something. Um, this dates back to an actual group of people who are known as the Sophists. Um, and to understand what these people, who these people were, what they were doing, we need to know what was going on in Athens um, in the 5th century. So the 5th century, uh, we're talking 650 or so BC, before Christ, Athens becomes the first democracy. Um, they get rid of their tyrant, um, their king, so to speak. Uh, they used to just be called tyrants, and uh, tyrants have since gained a bad name. That word tyrant um, has has come to mean bad king, but in their time, just the person in charge was called the tyrant. Um, and anyways, they kicked out their ruler, and they set up a democracy, and... Um, Suddenly, the the game changed. Uh, the game of power changed dramatically in Athens. Um, they had an interesting uh, way. I mean, they voted in elected officials, as as we do today. Only you know, freemen could vote, not slaves and and people that didn't weren't citizens and things like that. Um, and so people had to you know present their case for for why they should be elected. They had to do the whole political, you know, kind of campaigning and and, and getting their name out there. Interesting thing that they added to that was that once a year, um, people could vote on somebody to exile. And every year they they exiled somebody. So basically, it was like somebody that... um, well, it wasn't just anybody. It was somebody that was most likely to become a tyrant. And so in this way, they were protecting their system from basically electing somebody that would become tyrannical over their government, over their... and and remove, you know, the freedom that they had gained through democracy. So the rules of the game had changed dramatically. I mean, under the previous system, the way to rule was basically through brutality, or through, you know, good government as well. But, you know, when somebody was king, you sucked up to them, you made sure they were happy, and they made sure you were happy. Um, all of a sudden, the rules have changed where you need to keep the people happy, and you need to put on a good front. And the main thing that became power at that point was words. You need to be able to stand up in front of people and speak and communicate. Um... And uh, it's interesting how the rules of the game have changed even in the last century where uh, radio came in. And we just watched, my wife and I just sat and watched the King's Speech, a uh, great, great show on 
uh, King George the Sixth and his speech impediment and how difficult that was as radio was just coming on to have a king that had a speech impediment, had a stutter, and he went through these huge personal trials um, and, and surmounted these difficulties to finally be able to speak on the radio. Uh, and a similar thing happened um, in the 60s when television suddenly came on uh, and and uh, presidential debates were televised, and, and that's famously why John F. Kennedy won against the other guy, uh, because he was able to exude an air of cool confidence, whereas the other guy on TV wouldn't have shown up in radio, but on TV he was sweating, he looked awkward, and that's a big part of why he lost, even though you know, on radio, he, he would have done fine. So similarly, in ancient Athens, 500 years before Jesus, um, they got democracy all of a sudden. And all of a sudden, everybody's trying to figure out, how do you sway a vote? How do you gain power? How do you stand up and give a presentation and a speech? And um, so there was a hunger for this. And people were willing to pay big bucks to learn how to speak. And this created a trade, which was to be a sophist. Um, so there were already wise men around, um, you know, started by Thales. But this, and so these sophists used some of the, the pre-existing material, some of the wisdom literature. Um, I'm not sure the exact conjugation, but Sophia means wisdom, sophist must be some combination of, of meaning wisdom. They were using some of the material that, that predated them, but they were, their objective was not necessarily to pursue truth for truth's sake. The guys before them, they're trying to figure out what makes the world tick. Um, the Pythagoreans were like a religious sort of a sect that were trying to figure out you know the world through numbers. Uh, the Eleatic school, you know, nothing moves, everything is the same, and they're trying to express the world. But they're, they're trying to understand the world as it actually is. The sophists, they're using some of this stuff, but they want to get you elected. They want, you know, sometimes to get you out of, um, get you to win a case. So um, it seemed as though pretty quickly... Um, the I, I'm not real precise on the history of how the courts changed, but I know that Socrates was before court. He had to defend himself. He had, you know, he gave speeches and things like that. So it seemed like pretty quickly um, the sophist skills also would have been useful in court um, to sue somebody, to win your case, to defend yourself. And so these became kind of the power brokers in society. Um, but, again, they weren't necessarily after truth. They were after helping you win. So similar to lawyers today, uh, we love them, we hate them, we love to hate them. Um, they're useful. We, we need to have lawyers, we need to have um, notaries and things like that. But we kind of have this, they have kind of a bad rap in our society. And we have almost an idea that, well, you know, a lawyer can make anything sound good. Very similar to sophists in the day of, um, after Athens uh, became a democracy. Um, so one of the most famous uh, sophists was Protag Protagoras. Protagoras. How, how is this? Hold on a second. 
Protagoras, who says, Man is the measure of all things, of those things that are that they are, of those things that are not that they are not. So, man the measure of all things. You've heard that probably. Uh, that comes from Protagoras. And um, Copleston goes on to explain this isn't what... He's not proclaiming radical... Um, uh, radical relativism, just do whatever you want. Uh, when he says man the measure of all things, what he means is the collective, you know, all of us people together, uh, we're the people that decide. So it's kind of a re reference back to democracy. It was very important for the Athenians. Um, you know, we as a culture decide what is right. And basically, you know, worship the gods, be good, be nice to your neighbor, that sort of thing. But everything relates back to, you know, ethics and everything relates back to man, the measure of all things. Um, and there were ways that the sophists would be able to get you out of a crime or accuse somebody else of a crime uh, by, you know, twisting things, making things sound better, putting things in a better light. Um, that's kind of what they did. And um, he does eventually, although, you know, with plenty of caveats, say... Uh, this is Copleston here. After saying, you know, it's not just crazy do whatever you want. Uh, still, it cannot be denied that the doctrine of relativism, man the measure of all things, when linked up with the practices of dialectic and aristic, aristic, I don't know what that is, but dialectic is, you know, the, the art of logic and argument, very naturally produced a desire to succeed without much regard for truth or justice. Um, so the sophists were helping you get ahead without um, necessarily seeking for truth for truth's sake and then Socrates comes along and Socrates is this really interesting guy um, and it's really hard to um, separate the fact from the fiction with Socrates um, but the story is and all that we have is a story um, we don't know how much of it is true but the story is that he was just a, an artisan like everybody else he um, was uh, a pot, um, a potter, uh, and um, somebody went to the uh, oracle at Delphi, which was um, a prophetess that would answer supposedly from the god Delphi and tell people uh, different things. And um, he said, is anybody um, more wise than Socrates? And she said, no. And so his, this person came back and told Socrates, you're the wisest man in the world. There's nobody wiser than you. And he was like, wow, that's amazing. And uh, he went on a quest to try and find somebody wiser than him. And um, his way of... Um, let me pause this for a second and, and think. Okay. Let me stop telling the story here, because what I'm telling you is the story that he told in his trial. And um, in my reading of this story, because he got put on trial eventually for stirring up the people for teaching atheism. And so he stood trial, and he defended himself with this story. Um, but I actually don't think he's as... He's kind of playing dumb, I think, at his trial. 
And he said, oh, low is me, I'm just this innocent guy. Somebody told me I was the wisest man on the earth. And so I went around asking people if they were, to, to show me that whether or not they were wiser than me. Like, I didn't know. I was just trying to find somebody wiser than me. Um, what he was actually doing was um, inventing this new style of learning called inductive reasoning, which he described as um, being like a midwife and helping other people to come to understand what they already know within themselves. And this has become known as the Socratic method. It's teaching people through asking them questions. Uh, parents do this with kids sometimes. Um, what did you do? Do you think that was a good idea? Um, do you think your sister liked it when you did that? Would you like it if somebody did that to you? Okay, what do you think you should do about that? You know, if you ask a child enough questions, pretty soon they're going to come up with, well, I know what I did was wrong, and I know that I should do this and this to fix it. You could tell them that, you know, you just hit your sister in the head with a stick. That was wrong. Go to your room. Or you can ask them questions. And what you find is they know within themselves the truth, that what they did was wrong, and that they deserve consequences. Um, and so uh, for Socrates, he believed that uh, for some reason, humans have an innate knowledge within them. And uh, at one point he brought a slave in that had no formal education and started just asking him questions about math and, and, and various things that philosophers knew already. And this slave, if, if the questions were posed in the right way, would be able to explain these wonderful concepts um, that you would think you'd need an education for. But he said, no, we have an innate knowledge within ourselves. We just need to realize that we have that. And by asking enough questions, um, we can come to know the things that we already know, but we just didn't realize that we knew them. Um, and so for him, for Socrates, learning is remembering, is, yeah, remembering. Um, through asking the right questions, y you think that you're learning because somebody's telling you, but really you're learning because you're coming to remember something you already knew, which pushes us to the question, um, why do we know stuff already? Why is it that, you know, a child of five years old or, or younger, well, I have a three-year-old that knows right and wrong very clearly. Why? Why do, why do we know what is right and wrong? Um, and why do we choose so often the wrong? <laughs> as well as, um, as as concepts and ideas and language. All these things come very naturally to us as though we're remembering them. Why is this? So um, it seems as though he had some idea that we came from somewhere else, that somehow these ideas are implanted in us, although it's unclear what exactly he meant by that. As well, he pushed towards universal definitions. So he's got a lot of uh, dialogue dialogues on ethics. In fact, ethics is kind of the main thing that he brought to the table. Um, the And ethics becomes kind of a window into um, reality itself um, because there's one... There is definite right and wrong. There is absolute truth in the matter in ethics. Um, there is absolute 
there is um, what's a good example? There is real truth in math. There is real truth in in other matters. And this push towards uh, finding universals is kind of a push against the sophists. Now the older philosophers were kind of looking for absolutes. They're kind of looking for what's the one thing that holds everything together. Um, but that kind of seemed to uh, hit a dead end with uh, Parmenides, Being, and Zeno, and, and these, um, with the paradoxes of Zeno, it seemed as though truth wasn't, there wasn't any way that we could find absolute truth just by looking at the world as it is. And so this is how, uh, according to uh, Copleston, the sophists kind of in reaction to this said, look, we can't figure out the big picture. Let's just figure out how to live our lives, uh, which is kind of how postmodernism works as well. I mean, modernity failed. Let's just try and get through, you know, whatever gets you through the night, as John Lennon said. Um, and uh, Socrates is trying to bring it back and say, there is a big picture. There is... Um, absolute truth. There is real right and wrong, um, and that means that the world makes sense. Let's go back to this idea of of the mind. Let's go back to this idea of um, the word. There's something organizing everything um, that is higher than everything that, that makes sense, and, and even the fact that it's so easy for you to learn something because you're remembering something that you already know. There's a rationality within us and that rationality inside of us must connect with something else out there. Um, so according to Aristotle, the two things that Socrates brought to the table are inductive arguments. That's what I meant about this Socratic method, the midwifery, remembering, helping people remember uh, um, what they already know. Um, well, this is all part of inductive argument. An inductive argument is um, contrasted to a deductive argument. A deductive argument, you have two premises that are absolutely true. Um, uh, Socrates is a man. Um, all men are mortal. Those are two true propositions. They're demonstrable. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. That's a true, that's a deductive argument. An inductive argument Okay, I just did a quick Google search. Actually, that statement contains inductive logic. The statement, all men are mortal, is based on our observation of all the men that we know. And based on all that observation, it seems as though everybody that we know dies eventually. Uh, and so we, we have an inductive argument that all men are mortal, even though it might not be true. And um, some inductive arguments, uh, in fact, by definition, an inductive argument isn't always true. Um, but it's more likely than not that something is true uh, based on an inductive argument. Anyways, this is what Socrates brought to the table, was um, asking questions and probing and getting people to think, um, as well pushing towards a universal definition. What is absolute justice? What is absolute truth? What is the one thing that holds things together? And again, he's he's pushing towards. There's something. There's a mind. There's a there's some unity. There's a word. There's something behind everything that holds everything together. Now, Socrates, interestingly enough, um, there's tons of parallels between Socrates and Jesus. Um, and, and 
some people have used that to try and say Jesus was not a real person. Um, you know, he was just people trying to recreate Socrates. Um, the theory falls flat because there's just so much evidence for Jesus. Um, but there's, there's just, it's just an interesting thing, I guess, that there are tons of, of really interesting similarities between Socrates and Jesus. Um, Socrates never wrote anything. His disciples did. Uh, Socrates died for his faith, so to speak, his philosophy, um, as Jesus did. Socrates had, um, you know, a trial in which he, he expressed the essence of his, his philosophy, and he had final words to his disciples. So, uh, in, in, and he led, led a very exemplary life. In fact, it's the life of Socrates that, um, seems to have the most profound influence not only on Plato, who's the next important guy we'll look at, but on the whole Greek world through the writings of uh, Plato. He just has this tremendous influence on uh, Greek culture as kind of the model philosopher who, who lives a selfless life, who lives a life of learning. Um, he lived a life somewhat similar to the to the sophists in that um, people were always following him, people were always asking him uh, advice and trying to learn from him. He was different from the sophists in that he didn't take money, he didn't charge. I don't know how he lived, but he didn't charge for his services. Uh, and he had a group of, of kind of disciples that followed him, so to speak. Um, and uh, one of them, okay, so then Let's go back to the story we had at the beginning. So he eventually gets in trouble um, because supposedly he's teaching atheism. Um, and this, in my retelling of the story of how philosophy and religion interact, this is the first flashpoint that I identify as, you know, religion and science kind of clashing, religion and philosophy, so to speak, clashing. Um, because he's teaching, you know, a naturalistic way of seeing the world. Uh, but also because after um, the oracle supposedly told him that he was the wisest man on earth, he went around using this inductive argument. Um, he went to other artisans and, and started asking them questions to see if they were wiser than him, found that they weren't. And so then he went to politicians and, and tried to see if they were wiser than him, found out that they weren't. Uh, and, and he kind of went systematically around town and found that everybody was more foolish than he was, um, which is not a great way to make friends or influence people, obviously. And so kind of the consensus of history is that he just made plain old too many enemies by basically calling people stupid. Um, and that's really what got him killed. But he could have fled the city uh, very easily. Um, he could have agreed to pay a large fine, which he could have afforded, it seemed, or at least his friends would have easily paid for him. But he chose to say, no, I'm, uh, I, I will refuse to pay a fine to get out of this. And he refused to flee the city. Um, it was, I mean, Athens only had authority over Athens. There was no centralized Greek government. And so... Um, the fact that he didn't flee the city basically meant that he decided to die for his faith uh, or for his, his philosophy. So for all those reasons, he was... Um, and and 
then you know Plato is was really moved by the trial of uh, Socrates, and and that's what at the age of around sixty um, motivated Plato to become the greatest philosopher in Western history, um, following in the path of Socrates. Socrates also um, start like a bunch of his disciples started various philosophical schools and trends. But Plato really became the really important one. And Plato wrote a lot about Socrates. Um, and he, his first couple books um, likely were just recounting what actually happened. So the trial of Socrates, likely um, Plato just wrote everything that Socrates said. Um, as, Plato, as things go on, Plato goes on, as we're, as we're going to find out, to uh, found the Academy, the first... Um, real university or kind of the, the precursor to universities um, and he teaches he becomes this big you know public figure in town and he develops his own ideas uh, so Socrates had this vague idea of a mind or or the word that organized things and Plato comes up with the world of the forms and and we're going to talk about that in the next podcast how the forms are the thing that organizes everything in the world and gives it structure. And that's what we're, we're remembering, is the forms. Uh, and he has a, a kind of a shadowy explanation of how, how we came to be here and how we remember the forms. Um, Socrates doesn't... Uh, and um, all of his dialogues, Plato um, uses... He pretends that it's Socrates saying all this. Socrates kind of becomes this mouthpiece for the ideas of Plato later on in his life. And so that's where it becomes a little bit difficult. As I said at the beginning, I mean, all we have is a story. It's hard to know. I mean, some people have even theorized that maybe Socrates didn't even exist. He was just a figment of Plato's imagination. It's likely that somebody exists named Socrates that, you know, died um, for his philosophical ideas. Um but a lot of the things that uh, Plato um, attributed to Socrates were just made up by Plato. These were his own ideas that he put into Socrates' mouth. And that is the kind of the consensus of contemporary philosophers or historians. Also what Aristotle said of Plato, and Aristotle was the disciple of Plato. Um, and so speaking of his, you know, the guy he learned from and the guy that he learned from, um, he, he had close access to it and um, said basically that Plato put especially specifically the doctrine of the forms into the mind of Aristotle when Aristotle hadn't developed the mind of the, the world of the forms as his own idea. All right, so we're going to leave it there for Socrates and then um, in the next podcast we'll pick it up and talk about Plato.